Okay. So welcome everyone to Howling Coyote. And I'm really happy to have Louise Harding with me today. And she's writing some really interesting papers, to me at least, on um, sort of indigenous ideas about mind, brain, and thought, and how that relates to contemporary neuroscience. And uh, so I discovered her work uh, looking at doing a search on indigenous philosophy of mind mm -hmm. and uh, thought, wow, this would be a good discussion to have. So uh, Louise, can you say a little bit more about yourself and, and your work and how, how you came to this place in your scholarly life and, and sure. things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me on. It's a great pleasure. Um, I'm familiar with your work through the scoping review I did. Um, so it's a, a great pleasure to be able to speak with you about it. There's just a truck going by in front of the house here, but I think we'll be okay. Um, so I'm um, Louise Harding, as I said. Um, I am based at the University of British Columbia in Canada, uh, in Vancouver on the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Musqueam people. And I myself am a settler. So my um, my mother's parents immigrated here from England and my father immigrated from England. And um, the, prod, the paper you found, the scoping review about indigenous people's perspectives on the brain and mind globally um, was a project I undertook that ended up um, being a big part of my master's thesis in population and public health, which I actually defended yesterday. Um, so it's part of a larger piece of work around, as you said, um, brain and mind and connections to neuroscience. And um, the way I got into that kind of work was I was completing an undergraduate degree at UBC in biopsychology or behavioral neuroscience. And um, I grew up not having much understanding around colonization and settler colonialism or things like um, what it means to be a settler on unceded indigenous land. And then uh, in Canada, we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which toured the country. And that was in 2013 when they came to Vancouver and the university gave everyone a day off to attend that and listen to the testimonies of residential school survivors. And when I attended that, that really uh, shifted something for me to understand more about what had happened in the country. Um, and I started a process of learning at that point and took on a minor in First Nations and Indigenous Studies and worked in the First Nations and Endangered Language Program and then with youth in a nonprofit association for two years with Indigenous youth. So then when I wanted to come back to research, um, I, I was really fortunate to find a role with Dr. Judy Illis at Neuroethics Canada at UBC and to uh, start creating a project kind of at this niche where I had experienced this tension in my undergraduate degree between what I was learning in my neuroscience courses and then the politics and history I was learning in my Indigenous Studies courses and I wasn't feeling them coming together and I had kind of carried this separation with me and working in the community I didn't really keep much of the neuroscience part 
Um, and in this project, um, this work actually catalyzed out of a conversation with Dr. Malcolm King, who's based at the University of Saskatchewan and is a member of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. And we were talking to him about um, actually access to neurosurgery for Indigenous and rural and remote populations in Canada. And he brought up the question of, has anyone looked at the, the topic of brain health yet with Indigenous communities? And does it mean the same thing in Indigenous philosophies as it does in Western biomedicine? So a field like neuroethics is based on the idea that the brain is exceptional and requires its own ethical field when it comes to medicine. But does that same belief exist in some Indigenous communities? And how does mental health fit in that, as that's often a big priority for Indigenous communities? So we took on a scoping view to start to see, has this question been um, approached yet or what aspects have been approached? And actually your, um, your article with elders around, um, I believe it was um, mental health training um, was a really favorite of ours, um, especially mine and co-author Katerina Morrow, um, in terms of the, the depth of exploration around. It kind of got the closest out of all the papers to exploring the key questions we had going to the work. Oh, that's really nice to hear. You know, I'm 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 always thrilled when somebody reads one of my papers. <laughs> one of my colleagues did a study and discovered that on average an academic paper is read by seven people. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, so um so Tell us, I think people listening would really like to know, you know, a bit of compare and contrast of indigenous notions of mind and brain com compared to conventional neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So can you do a bit of comparison and contrasting? Yeah. So um, in the scoping review study, we, we looked globally, so we were looking um, not at select Indigenous communities, but about literature about any Indigenous community around the world. Um, so I'll just say that what we learned was based on the, you know, 66 communities we found papers about, and it's, um, it, there's probably some generalizability to other communities, um, but there's always a lot of um, diversity and so on. But uh, one thing we, a few things we noticed, um, particularly as some members of our team um, have this background in neuroscience. Reading these papers, some key themes that were different from the Western biomedical neurological sciences papers we normally read were certainly a more holistic view on um, brain health. So not, uh, not the same focus on um, the brain in isolation, if that makes sense, just the individual neuron firing and chemicals more in relation to it could be um, the land relationships with a very important one and family um spirituality was a big one that came up that you don't normally see in western biomed biomedical papers often outside of the purview of um western philosophies in the same sense that you see it um in indigenous philosophies and um 
and also um, wellness and well-being rather than health or um, cure, looking for a cure. Um, that was that was something different we had. So papers around, um, for example, talking about mental wellness or uh, brain wellness in aging versus um, more looking at specific fixes or um, diagnosable pathologies in the brain. And we did elaborate on this in a subsequent project. So the, the scoping review led into, which was the, the biggest part of my thesis project, um, is a Indigenous brain wellness and mental health working group, which uh, we set up last fall. And so there were 20 people in the working group um, from our networks, including elders, healthcare providers, people who work in the community and people who live with brain and mental health conditions or have lived with them. And um, we talked about the meaning of brain wellness in an Indigenous health context to, to get more into this question. And uh, two thirds of the group members were Indigenous and everyone works with Indigenous peoples in that context. And definitely, again, the big one that came up was you know, we came in with this targeted question about what is the meaning of brain wellness, but people talked about all sorts of different things. So in answering this question about brain wellness, people were talking about um, environmental hazards. They were talking about intergenerational trauma and intergenerational strength, um, political aspects. So it was like a much wider view on brain health than we typically are seeing in uh, neuroscience, which was really satisfying for me to see because I think the challenge I had in my journey studying the two at the same time was neuroscience was so narrow and I was struggling to see how it fit in this bigger picture of um, indigenous people's well-being and um, and me being a settler on an indigenous land and how I can support and um, you know, do better and uh, realizing that if we, you know, blow up and expand that view of neuroscience, there's there's a lot to work on there and there's a lot of connections. Yeah, you know, it makes me think about um, the whole area of dementia. And and so in in conventional circles, there's so much focus on um, finding a drug and these neurofibrillary plaques. And yet the literature is so much more robust in terms of sense of belonging or, mm. you know, being in a community or exercising or eating well. And uh, it strikes me that that that's that's so much more compatible with indigenous thought and so ignored by conventional medicine sort of conventional research strategies you know which which there's a way I and I and I I'd love you to react to this and to say more but there's a way in which in the conventional world it's it's so narrow you know, the the brain is isolated from everything else. And in indigenous thought, you know, it, everything is embedded 
you know, contextualized. Um, there, you can't talk about something without its without talking about its environment. You know, where where is it? Um, can you say some more? I mean, do you agree? And can you say some more in relation to that? Yeah, that that was a big takeaway uh, for many of us from the working group um, was we can't talk about the brain without talking about all the other things and and even um, things such as what brings us to a discussion about the brain. So the positionalities of people even discussing the brain and um, the dementia and um, aging that that was quite a large focus. So I think it was um, uh, one fifth of the papers in the scoping review had a main focus on dementia or aging. Um, so you, it's right. You rightly pointed that out as a, a key area um, in this body of research with Indigenous peoples. And it was even larger in Canada. So there's a lot of research in Canada, uh, First Nations communities, research with communities around their traditional ways of knowing about healthy aging and so on. For example, uh, Dr. Jennifer Walker was part of our group and she's doing a lot of really interesting research um, around, for example, um, intergenerational social engagements to support healthy brain aging. Um, and that was one paper that came up in our scoping review as well. And um, Separately, I'm working on a scoping review around um, the connections between uh, Indigenous languages, rather it's, whether it's speaking or revitalizing languages or learning languages and health overall. And definitely one I've seen come up there that has linked these two studies has been healthy aging, because often it's um, elders and older people who are carrying the languages. And one thing actually being how, being that um making sure that they have access to care in those languages being important but also how it can really help help um them if they are if they can hear their language around them and there's some really interesting papers i'm seeing coming up around that around the reactions of people who have been who are indigenous language speakers and maybe they have um, dementia and they're not very responsive and then someone comes and in an English clinic or hospital setting and then someone comes and speaks their language to them and they they kind of come alive and they start reacting in different ways um, that that it was believed wasn't within the possibility of where their current brain health was so I think like all these things connect like it brain health and then you can talk about languages and um resurgence and healing but also things like um colonization and racism it it's all in there and definitely in our working group discussions it was quite broad and a lot of the you know even changes we were talking about as a working group what can we do uh, what should we take on and a lot of the things we talked about were very big systemic changes like you talked about of there's this um incompatibility you could look at it in that way between, you know, indigenous ways of knowing about brain and health and the Western biomedical ways, or I think it might be more useful to look at it as more of the Western systems um, rigidity of um, 
being very focused on the organs and a certain way of looking at health and the need to be more open and to break down prejudices um, that are preventing us from from looking at these other connections to brain health. Um, and a, just a big thing I heard in the working group was the need for Western medicine to respect indigenous ways of knowing. And, and there was a lot of hope there of, of where that can lead and where it is leading in some good case examples right now. Yeah, and <clears throat> you, you make me think of two-eyed seeing, which mm -hmm. I know is, is permeating Canada. Yeah. The idea and the term. Mm -hmm. And um, we're actually creating a center for two-eyed seeing um, with the University of New Brunswick, wow. which, um, which is kind of an interesting partnership because um, the border um, is not indigenous. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the Pescatamacati um, people live on both sides of the border as to the Maliseets and the Mi'kmaq and to to them it's an arbitrary line and and uh, so anyway it's kind of exciting for us to to think about a partnership that's Wabanaki which is the wow. you know the overall term of, of for the tribes here nations here mm -hmm. and um, and you reminded me too that I forgot to mention that I'm speaking from the uh, unceded homeland of the Penobscot Nation and that I should acknowledge um, their elders past, present, and future. So uh, a bit of, of rudeness on my part. Apologies to spirits who are listening. Um, but I, I think there is a lot to say about two-eyed seeing. And everywhere I go, um, people mention that the conventional or the biomedical way of seeing is always privileged. Mm -hmm. And it's always an uphill battle or, well, usually a battle to get the indigenous perspective acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and no one, I mean, I think um, no one wants to dis bench research or the mm -hmm. fMRI machine. Mm -hmm. but, but you know, as as you're saying, there's there's more to the brain than the changes one sees on an fMRI. Mm -hmm. However interesting they might be. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I wondered, I wondered if we could venture into, um, I wanted to move more toward thoughts about unwellness, you know, the, that sort of comparison of, of, of um, sort of emotional unwellness in, in indigenous thought versus, you know, conventional thinking. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I suspect that that you've, you've ventured a bit into that too. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, in the working group, it, it just uh, makes me think a little bit about um, 
what one of the elders shared quite a lot about um her name is um uh Sharon Jinkerson Brass and she's a member of Key First Nation in Saskatchewan and she talked a lot about um lost connections with the spirit of um many indigenous peoples and she shared her own story around this um and uh, one thing I think about a lot that she shared was about how our society is based in a lot of fear, um, a lot of ideas of right and wrong and hierarchy. And in Indigenous cultures, it's a lot more about humility and compassion. And she even used the word about fearlessness, which I thought was really beautiful. And she talked about her own quite um, in length about her own journey um, which I won't share too many details of, but just that she talked about learning from her grandmother how not to be afraid anymore. And, and I think that was a big piece for me in uh, learning in those working groups. And um, I report, you know, to the extent of what I've said in my thesis uh, with their consent already. And um, that, that was a different way of looking at it that, um, you don't hear about in the Western medical sphere. And it, it leads to a different path of um, healing from that kind of thing is very different from going to the doctor and getting a prescription. And so the kind of, um, it kind of goes down the path of, you know, healing from states of unwellness, what that might look like for each person and, um, it was shared by another about the need for self-determination in those healing pathways. So in an indigenous person engaging with the Western medical system, if they would like to, that's, that's their choice and how they would like to do that. Would they like to bring in their indigenous healing approaches and integrate that with their Western medical treatment, or would they like to pursue that in parallel and to create their own journey? Because I think, it does come back to what you're kind of describing here as a different, if you're looking at the problem you're bringing differently, um, I can imagine if you don't have an exact agreement philosophically with the, the physician or nurse or Western medical professional you're working with, um, you there'll be different goals and different end goals there. So I think that's very important to consider that and have those options for, um, yeah, for healing from different um, types of seeing and experiencing um, unwellness. Yeah, and <clears throat> I know one of our 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 struggles here, and and besides being with the University of Maine, I work for. Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness, which is the, the public health district for the First Nations of Maine. And one of our challenges is to indigenize psychology and psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And and it's a it's a challenge because so many of our community members are completely colonized and they're thinking about psychiatry and psychology so so you know we're trying to get them to think in terms of verbs you know that that however 
you know, feelings are part of a process and they're thinking that they have these nouns, you know, and they come in and announce, mm. you know, that the, that their bipolar is acting up or their mm. PTSD is out of control today, you know, and, and mm. um, it's quite a challenge to, 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 to try to reorient them toward, um, so let's look at what's going on in your whole life around you and what are your emotions responding to and and it may not it may not be that there's this thing called PTSD you know that's that's controlling you today but um, yeah did that did that come up in any of the discussions that sort of um yeah decolonize the whole diagnostic and treatment uh, enterprise? Um, I think it came up. That's definitely something I think about a lot. And I, um, and I don't know if that came up directly, but it did come up in the sense that um, one member, um, Dr. Nell Wyman, who practiced as a psychiatrist and is now a public health leader in the First Nations Health Authority in British Columbia, talked about that her training as a Western psychiatrist, um, Western psychiatry training only provided her with like 50% or less of what she needed to work in the First Nations community she she went to work in. The other part of the training was from learning from the healers in the community. And she said the way that they approached it was um, working very closely with those elders and healers that that was the only way um to go about it and she talked what one of the most moving things for me in that group was um she talked about that um when when they brought together the healers from the community with their these western psychiatric approaches they were not only meeting the the standard of care set by Western medicine, but they were able to exceed that. And I think what you're talking about of this idea of, you know, going beyond the idea of something like PTSD and looking deeper into that, I think that's where that kind of like key is to getting even beyond what Western medicine is imagining we can do with um, healing from different conditions, uh, different states of mental unwellness. And that that's definitely uh, an area of great interest to me. And I think to many people right now is um, we're seeing um, in, in the scoping review. And I think all over you hear that many indigenous communities are interested in um, mental health, mental wellness and experiencing challenges related to colonization and ra uh, racism and oppression and so on. Um, which are leading to states of mental unwellness and how to how to heal from that. But and yet, I think um, everyone is experiencing that Western biomedical approaches to mental health aren't always the most effective. If they're not really, I'm, maybe this is getting more into my opinion um, that a lot of the Western psychiatric approaches to mental health conditions are not always. Um, super effective and it's can be much more effective to look more broadly and more relationally 
spiritually, all these sorts of different aspects. And I think there's some key knowledge in Indigenous cultures and communities around um, healing that that really needs to be brought in because I think that's, you know, there's some things Western medicine is really good at and, um, you know, a pacemaker to prevent having another heart attack, like a deep brain stimulator for Parkinson's disease. There's some things which are, uh, you know, very effective. effective um, and I think everyone is grateful for these advances or most people are very grateful for this. But then there's other things where I think um, mental health, I think um, pain is another one. Chronic pain is another one that we struggle with. Recovery from substance use disorders. There's some different ones that Western medicine really struggles with. And there's like a key area of need for incorporating other perspectives there. But I think what you're describing a little bit is, um, is kind of back to what I experienced um, you know, in my undergraduate degree is this rigidity of the one way of seeing, um, you know, health or the brain, for example, being around neurons, diagnoses that are in a book, which is like a sort of Bible for diagnostic conditions of brain and mind um, and a rigidity and not being able to look beyond that. And that can actually be very really hinder us from um, understanding each other and helping each other and ourselves. Yeah. And, and it, it, it made me think of one of your other papers um, where, where you raised the question of how do we measure evidence, you know, among indigenous partnerships. And I thought of, of um, a conversation I had in another podcast with Walter Lindstrom from CAMH in Toronto. And he was talking about his frustration that when that the, the only evidence that um, the biomedical people would accept would be a randomized control trial. And mm -hmm how would you do a randomized control trial mm. of traditional healing? You know, um, because the traditional healer wouldn't even necessarily accept the allopathic diagnosis. And, mm. you know, I was mm. telling Walter about a, mm. an elder I, I took to a conference once in, in Alberta to be on a panel and a nurse in the in the room asked him how he would treat arthritis. And he said, I don't know her. Bring her around to the house tomorrow and I'll get to know her and then I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so if, if you can't even agree on on mm -hmm. you know diagnosis then how can, how can you mm. communicate, mm. you know? And uh, to me, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to open people's minds, but maybe not to the closed minds on the other end of the stick. And I wondered mm. if you could talk to what, 
to what you learned about about measuring evidence. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Um. Are you referring to the um paper around? So uh, we wrote one. Indigenous-led healthcare partnerships in Canada. Oh yeah. So That's not your paper. I'm sorry. Yeah. We just wrote a response oh. to this very interesting paper. Oh, yeah. I was, I guess I saw your response and I thought it was, <laughs> but you know, it was a great paper though. I'm glad you. <laughs> yeah. And one of my yeah. students is an, is a co-author. Oh, Andrew wow. Atala, really? Wow. Former students. <laughs> yeah. One of my former students. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The lead author, I believe. How the first you? author. Well, <laughs> that's so funny that I thought you, that was your paper. <laughs> well, tell tell me what you guys had to say about that paper. Um. Well, so that paper was written um, just before the the pandemic, and then we were starting our project of the working group um, when during the pandemic. So we were encountering challenges around. Um, there wasn't guidance in the literature yet around. For example, consulting with elders on Zoom. This isn't something that was, you know, there was an established protocol that we were aware of around doing something like this. So we were looking to hold sharing circles, but then we were realizing we were going to have to hold that over Zoom. Um, and uh, Dr. King had um, experience from being involved in projects as the pandemic was evolving and had picked up some strategies that we could use in that context. Um, but um, that, so what we uh, were seeing in that paper that we were responding to was about how the, the importance of these indigenous led partnerships in the healthcare space in Canada and how they're really um, defining health research and the healthcare landscape in Canada are these innovative ways that um, indigenous communities are um, working, whether in partnership with, um, you know, federal or provincial programs or uh, within their own communities to promote health. Um, and so we were thinking about, you know, what does this look like now that we're in a time of COVID-19? How do, what does this continued, you know, community work look like if there's no in-person contact? Um, so we just wrote a short letter around um, some things, a few examples we had learned about, for example, um, healing circles of how those were being done um, during Zoom, during a time of Zoom or of uh, video conferencing, such as um, recording something beforehand and giving it to participants to do at a certain time um, and the use of um, different, uh, different approaches overall for um, upholding ceremonial protocols like the gifting of tobacco, uh, um, doing that virtually, whereas before it would be done in person. So it was just a short um, response that we wrote to that letter. But the letter garnered, that that article uh, got a lot of responses. It was it was a very, they, they covered a lot of ground um, in that paper. I think it um, was quite impactful. Yeah, it was a good paper and, and... <laughs> I'm sorry that I thought you wrote it, but it was a good paper. Maybe and, I wish I did. Yeah, but we're not. So you have to, you know, you cannot write the same paper. 
<laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, but yeah, I was thinking about, um, you know, our, our challenges in, you know, we're, we're really trying to, to decolonize our public health district. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy because the, you know, the various uh, health clinics in on the different reserves typically have locum doctors who come and go and mm. are relatively uninterested in the indigenous perspective. Mm. And, um, you know, we're... Um, we're we work um, deeply in substance use disorders and where we can um, to some extent you know affect the philosophy of treatment um, but it's it's hard you know mm -hmm. that and as as we've been talking about you know pill pill giving and taking is privileged and um, you know when you think about it it's part of the substance problem is 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 that people grew up learning that when you're distressed mm. um, pop a pill or mm. drink something mm. or you know in, inject something and um, this this notion of of which I think is is a more indigenous notion of of sitting in sitting in the midst of distress, you know, distress mm -hmm. tolerance um, is completely alien to them. You know, it's not something mm -hmm. that they grew yeah. up around. Mm -hmm. You know, which is our challenge mm -hmm. really, is to is to change that perspective on. What do you do when you're upset? Yeah. Or what do you do when you're sad? Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. um, we were just talking in a meeting before you and I began about how um, about drug use during wakes. You know, when people mm -hmm. die, and and how how can we how can we reduce that? Like, what do we need to have in place around mm. a wake and a funeral mm. to provide options to people for express, you know, for actually tolerating their their sadness and their loss, mm -hmm. you know, so as to reduce the the use of substances. Mm. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, what other, what other, can you give me some examples of, of places and, and things that you discovered that are working? Yeah. Um, one, one really nice example in Vancouver, actually right now that, um, we heard about in the working group in detail was, um, it's called the Kilala Lalum Health Clinic. And it's in the downtown east side, which is um, a very impoverished postal code. Um, a lot of people are experiencing homelessness and um, 
struggling with substance use down there and um, they have a really innovative model and the executive director, uh, Dr. Leah Walker was part of the working group and I got to visit a few weeks ago as well. And um, they're opening a substance use clinic across the road very soon because they've had a lot of success with their model. This is more, this is more towards um, that what I heard in that context around substance use is more around um, low barrier access to safe supply. So in the downtown east side, that that is a big one because there's a lot of um, issues around criminality because um, so many people are needing drugs and the only way to get them is illegally and you know all, all this stuff and so big thing happening down there is safe supply um, injection sites and so on um, so there's some really amazing stuff going on down there but at the same time they have um, elders embedded into their multidisciplinary clinic which is a really beautiful model so you can go in every day and um, sit in sessions with elders they have like a uh, group sessions um, they have um, meals happening twice a day where you can come visit with the community while you're picking up your medication or you can just um, come and visit and counselors embedded with the doctors and even though a lot of you know doctors and nurses coming in through the system might not have the awareness and education yet around indigenous healing and perspectives and so on they are providing that training when they get to the clinic and really supporting those healthcare providers throughout um, in, with the real perspective that everyone is on a learning journey. So always discussing cases and what could have been done better. Um, but I think that um, this is a really challenging one. And I notice when you're speaking about sitting with the stress, the picture of the Buddha in the background you have there, um, so this is definitely something around the world. And I think it it is a very um, colonial um, mindset. I think saying that myself as a British person, I think this is something we see a lot in um, British culture. And I think even around the, the idea of the British leaving England when um, they had used up so many of the resources, it was very crowded and dirty and you know, the impetus to go and set up a new world overseas versus, you know, working on repairing their our, their own society and um, like regenerating that. And um, it was to do a lot of very terrible things to move Indigenous people off the land so that there could be a new society there. I, I even like make a connection here and I think that um, that this this mindset of um, reaching for something rather than understanding what we're really feeling and what's really going on is is a big thing there and um, a lot of um, counseling approaches certainly deal with this and I think a lot of um, elders this is um, something they're working around a lot it it does sound like in my other review, like um, learning languages, there there seems to be quite a lot of evidence around, um, and, you know, every, every community is different in terms, every indigenous community is different in terms of where they're at with their language and whether one could access um, learning opportunities and so on. But there is some pretty good evidence um, that we're 
finding in the scoping review to support um, um, whether it's you um, having fluency or ability in one's indigenous language and lower rates of um, substance use or mental distress or psychological distress. Um, and there is a really interesting study happening in Australia right now where they've done the closest thing to kind of a randomized control trial they could around learning your indigenous language and a community revitalizing their language. So, so the community where the language was sleeping. So it's, they're looking at the whole community, looking at the people who are engaged in their revitalization and reclamation, and then the people who um, chose not to be involved in it and then measuring mental wellness and it was having um, positive effects already they're seeing. So, um, and this is certainly something we saw in the scoping review and the working group, which is around um, culture as intervention. And that's something they're uh, at that clinic downtown as well. And that's something, I think that's very important and unique um, because, um, yeah, this colonial healing from the colonial mindset, um, trying to look for a way out through the, you know, colonial tools of psychiatry and so on. I think that, um, that doesn't always, that doesn't always work so well, but many indigenous communities have this amazing, these amazing rich cultures and languages, um, and spiritualities and philosophies and, Find, and I, communities have always known this and the research is catching up now, I think, to see how that can impact things like mental wellness, reducing substance use and yeah, tolerating, you know, unbearable distress, like what you've described, which is challenging for everyone. I think, I think it was Christopher Lalonde at UVic who, yeah, found, yeah that communities mm -hmm. with intact language had virtually no suicide. Yes. Yeah. They studied um, British Columbia, Chandler and the Lond, mm -hmm. and um, they were looking at youth suicide rates because they saw that how variable it was. Um, some communities have way below, you know, any international rate of youth suicide and some communities, the rate was way above, despite this kind of general belief that indigenous communities have higher youth suicide rates. They're actually seeing that it's a very mixed landscape. And they looked at um, the language factor. So I think it was that whether 50% or more of the people in the community have some ability in their indigenous language. Um, and they were looking at um, census data. I believe that's the how it worked. And those communities that had the 50% or less had, there was only like, there was almost zero youth suicides in those communities. What that 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 study really shook the field, and I think that was in two thousand four or two thousand seven, and that was a big reason we took on the scoping review. Actually, the language and health one because that one study is called on so much, and it had limitations and so on. And we felt that there must be more literature out there, and we found we have two hundred and forty studies right now, which are providing many of which provide similar evidence for this link between language and health. That's wonderful. I, I, I'm, I hope you publish a list of all those studies so I can go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the fun. 
I noticed in one of your paper, you were talking about building a database. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Is that still a project and how are you coming with it? Yeah, so um, in the uh, project we took on in shaping the, the brain and health, brain and mind scoping review was around um, identifying the challenges of actually finding literature about Indigenous people because of all the different terms you could use, all the different definitions for Indigenous peoples. And the best thing would be to put in every, the name of every Indigenous community you'd be interested to learn about, but that information isn't always available. And sometimes uh, each communities have multiple different um, names and um, different uh, spellings and so on. Um, and so we had suggested one thing which would be really useful as a database that indexes um, literature about all Indigenous peoples around the world. And you could just search for anything like, um, yeah, substance use recovery or something and find only papers about Indigenous peoples. Um, we, uh, I haven't seen any progress on this. Um, I think one you know, we thought this would be a great thing to do, but I think the resources are a, a big challenge there. And the paper, though, has received a lot of attention. That has been definitely um, my um, biggest paper. It's according to the online metrics you get. Um, but one thing that they have made progress on is the University of Alberta has made these lists. Um, I believe they have them for Canada, the U.S., Australia, so it's starting with um, these settler colonial countries um, of uh, big search strings with the names of all the indigenous communities. So you actually can like do a big copy paste. So if you want to know about um, in the United States of all the, the nations and tribes on a topic, um, they have created a document where you can copy paste the, the name of every nation there. And so you're more likely to get um, balanced outputs about different communities so that's good and um, it looks like they're doing more and more countries <clears throat> that would be impressive to see it would be a long it's very long <laughs> yeah i think it is a challenge because one has to type in indigenous and then aboriginal and then mm -hmm. first nations and then native american and then mm -hmm. american indian and Alaska mm -hmm. Native, and well, you would know this better than me, having done the scoping review. Mm -hmm. but <laughs> it's it's tedious to look for papers, you know, with all mm -hmm. these different terms. Yeah, and if you try to go globally, it's even a bigger challenge. So even the definition of indigenous, if you go to Africa or Asia, different definitions would include or exclude different groups. Uh, in these places. So that was a huge challenge of would groups in, in Africa that were considered under the definition of indigenous that we adopted, which for the study, which was the United Nations definition, be included in the word, if we put the word indigenous, like would it, would the, was the article tagged with indigenous? So it would have been, yeah, that was a big challenge for us. And we didn't find a huge number of papers from Africa or Asia, and that might've been one of the reasons why versus I think in uh, Canada, the United States and South America, um, the, the definition is quite easy to apply because uh, colonization has been um, more recent and more, um, yeah, a diff very different history of colonization than Asia and 
Africa and of just movement of peoples, not always colonization. Yeah, and I, I suspect Africa had a different, so it would have been the French and the Belgians and British. British also, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas in the English speaking countries, it was mostly the British. Mm -hmm. that, may have, that may influence terminology. Yeah. And then there's even um, in Africa and um, Asia, for example, in Asia, the Han Chinese movement and, um, and moving out indigenous communities there. And in Africa, similar things of um, communities, a lot of um, movements. So we'd look at a community uh, in a country and then find out that that community has been there for, for example, 500 years or uh, 1000 years. And in if you if a country had been there for 500, if a community had been there for 500 years in somewhere like British Columbia, they're indigenous because um, Canada has only existed for 150 years or so. But with these much longer histories there, you have these very um, different cases. Yeah, there's a there was a podcast I did um, with a fellow named Mofat Osoro from Nairobi, Kenya. Mm. Um, and he came from an indigenous community about 300 kilometers, I think, east of Nairobi, but it could have been west. Mm. Um, and he he experienced conventional health care in Nairobi and decided to bring indigenous healers into a clinic that could work as the primary source of healthcare with with the conventional medicine people as the secondary backup helpers. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, if you Google yeah. uh, my name and his name together, I think the podcast will come up. Yeah, um, wow, yeah. It was pretty impressive and um, so I, I know people are working in these ways in Africa, but, mm -hmm. it's, but it's, I stumbled upon him, <laughs> um, you know, as, as, as I was looking for, you know, literature as I do. <laughs> so, um, wow. It's a very different context. Um, I think in the African context from, from the few papers we, we found about, um, brain health in from the African continent. Um, there was a lot more around, um, uh, for example, more um, supernatural um, understandings around, for example, um, epilepsy, the cause of something like epilepsy being more related to um, someone's actions or inaction in a certain case or interaction with a certain um, animal or plant. Um, or something the family did or something like that. Um, and it did talk more about, I did definitely see papers there about um, more use of the traditional healers in rural communities. So uh, it, it does sound, uh, it was almost to the point of, do these, is this useful to bring this set of papers into our set of papers with, um, you know, North America and, and South America where we're seeing kind of different themes, but 
um, yeah, definitely a different scope there, but, but there were some similarities, I think, um, definitely like what you've described this interaction with the, the, um, biomedical approaches to healthcare yeah. and challenges of, um, for example, a physician working with someone who believes that epilepsy comes from a supernatural origin and they can't have agreeance around, you know, if it comes from a supernatural origin, how would a, a pill heal from that the kind of like um, challenge there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He, That's interesting. Yeah. He, he told us about his three grandmothers who, who were still doing traditional healing mm. in their community in their 90s. Wow. Yeah, and I thought, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're mm. getting close to the end of, of our time. Do you, Anything that you haven't told us that, that it's really exciting you right now? Or, <laughs> or what's your next project? Or, <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, thanks. That's been a really great conversation and really, um, you know, exciting to speak with you and uh, talk about this topic. Quite a, a new one to think about. Um, I guess the thing for me in the the project and uh, a big focus, especially in my thesis um, overall, has been about focusing not only on the the content, which is what we've discussed a lot about today, but around like how we go about learning about these views um, from indigenous peoples and developing these knowledges. And that was one thing we liked a lot in your paper. And I use a quote that we included in the paper on several uh, PowerPoint uh, conference presentations and posters, which is around um, the ethics like a research ethics board requiring consent forms and so on and the elders you're speaking to so it was something along the lines of that um if you listened and you know understood and took the knowledge with you they felt that was good enough but the university requires that they assign away a consent form a waiver of liability and all these kind of things um and that being kind of funny for them but um it was a kind of a of funny way you wrote of that they they humored you in engaging in the the process um but yeah for me uh the the process of the project and especially the working group was more about how to bring together western knowledges and indigenous knowledges in a in a respectful space in a way in a space um where people feel um listened to from a variety of backgrounds how um, me as a settler scholar can be organizing such a project without, well, um, you know, minimizing the imposition of my epistemologies and ontologies that I, you know, inherently bring as a non-Indigenous person, things like this. So I guess, um, yeah, that that's just an important piece to me is around uh, that developing the knowledge is important, but in a way that is actually you know, really indigenous community driven and really working with communities on their goals and collaborative and the long term vitality of those connections has been a key part. And I, I felt that in your work as well. 
And um, I think, yeah, moving forward in the field, I think that's a key key piece to keep keep a hold on is um, even as, you know, exciting things are evolving and so on, it's all about doing right by the process of that work and how that can actually be more impactful at the end of the day than an academic paper or something else like that. Right, right. We forget that doing good in the world is more important than amassing publications. Yeah. <laughs> and especially in the context of the, you know, research abuses with Indigenous communities, which, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I think, I'm sure that's what the Research Ethics Board had in mind of, you know, that's why they wanted you, in your case, to go through the consent form process and all that is because of the historical challenges, even though the community said, no, we are comfortable. We that's not what this is and we know that um yeah but it's it's still mm -hmm. a challenge i remember telling the ethics board that that if they weren't in agreement they wouldn't even talk to me yeah <laughs> just walk away <laughs> wow. they didn't really understand the cultural you know how how the culture would have acted if they didn't want to do it <laughs> you know and there's some very exciting stuff happening there. Some of my classmates I've heard about of um, bringing a research ethics board to a community to actually um, work on the ethics um, application with them in person and see this is our community. This is the context of what we're telling you because it could be very rigid of, you know, they have to write, the community has to write their own they have to create their own research ethics board to prove it and so on. But the community is saying, no, we're completely comfortable with this, for example. Um, and they see we've done these ceremonies and this to us is equivalent or actually better. So I think that's an exciting area for me right that now. That is exciting. Uh, that yeah. is exciting. That's an idea that I'm going to tuck away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. uh, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> And and I'm thrilled that you guys used my paper. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, I'm happy that it was useful. Yeah. So uh, thank you.